Customs and Border Protection actually did not keep a record of the children that they took from the parents. They renamed the files so that there was no way to connect the parents and the kids back together. And that was one of the most shocking things that we and other journalists were discovering as we dug into this. That was Oriana Zilder Granados of CBS News 60 Minutes, one of the producers of On the Border. Hello, and welcome to another episode of On Assignment at Home. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Abby Wright. I run the prizes department at Columbia Journalism School. And I'm joined, as always, by my friend and colleague, Lisa R. Cohen, director of the DuPont Columbia Awards. Hello, Lisa. Hi, Abby. So today's episode is a look behind the scenes of one of our 2020 DuPont winners. That's right. I got the chance to talk to Michael Ray and Oriana Zildi-Granados in a virtual conversation for our incoming J School students. Michael is also a producer for 60 Minutes, although over the last year he's been senior producing for the Evening News broadcast, which is a very different role, and he's going to talk about it in this episode. He himself is a J School grad, by the way. He's the class of 2001. It's always nice to have an alum be part of our conversations. So they were a team at 60 Minutes, right? Michael and Oriana. And they worked with correspondents Scott Pelley and Sharon Alfonsi on two segments about the family separation crisis at the U.S.-Mexico border. Those stories together won a silver baton this year. Why do you think those stories won DuPonts, Lisa? Well, just for myself, one thing I really appreciated personally about these two pieces is that they they looked at the same issue, but they did it in very different ways. The piece that they did for Scott Pelley was focused on a complex dig into the timeline of the Trump administration's family separation policies and their impact on children. And while they did interview the family of one boy who was separated, it, it really was about uncovering documents and crunching data. It was more of a hard-hitting news piece. Right. It actually broke news, didn't it, when the team discovered in the course of their reporting that the family separation had actually started months before the administration said that it did? Yes, exactly. So really groundbreaking reporting here. So much so, in fact, that it prompted a condemning tweet from the president himself the next day. Hmm. And what about the Sharon Alfonsi piece? So for that piece, the team actually went to the U.S.-Mexico border. They rode along with border patrol agents and they witnessed people being directly impacted by these policies. And they talked to agents at those centers who were carrying out the policies. So they came away with a really experiential piece, a a you are there kind of piece. Right, and so together it was a really powerful combination of reporting. So in this episode, we get to hear all about the production behind both of those pieces. And a lot more. Oriana and Michael talked to us about everything from the secret basement meetings they took while reporting these stories to the new coronavirus reality of what it's like producing the news from their living rooms, basically. And speaking of producing from your living rooms, a heads up, this (laughs) conversation was hosted over Zoom. Yes, so periodically throughout this episode, you're going to hear me refer to the chat. That's where the students and other attendees were asking questions. All right, so let's get started. As always, this is an edited version of the conversation. I'm just going to start with you, Michael. If you could help us understand a little bit about both of the stories. 
so the the Scott Pelly piece was the first piece of, of the two. This is the Homeland Security order to arrest and detain all adults who crossed illegally to seek asylum. The copy released to the public was censored by the administration, but we've obtained what the White House didn't want the public to see. The document reveals that child separation began nine months earlier than the administration acknowledged. There was a pilot program in the busy El Paso sector from July to November 2017. We don't know how many children were taken in those five months. The censored part of the memo explains a reason for the policy, deterrence, as it will have the greatest impact on current flows of immigrants. By the time we started working on that story, there'd been a lot of coverage of the border. People knew sort of the, the elements of what was going on. And the benefit we have of being in 60 minutes is time. So we decided to circle back on a lot of the reporting that had already been done and take a look at it and say, okay, what did we miss? People have sort of moved on from this story a little bit. How can we dig back in and, and really figure out what happened? So our goal with the Scott Pelly piece was to A, do our own count. How many kids a couple of months later, now with a little bit of history behind us, how many kids were taken from their parents? Can we figure that out from the publicly available information or insider information? Uh, there was this one document that we showed you right there right at the end, which had been redacted, which had been re released publicly, I think either BuzzFeed or ProPublica had put it out. So that had gotten some coverage and had gotten Kirsten Nielsen at the time, who was the head of DHS in a little bit of trouble. But there was still speculation about what else it said. So part one of our goals was to dig in and try to find that document and show the full the full Monty on it. In addition to, to those two elements, we for that piece, we had some folks who by that time were willing to talk. There's been a lot of people in the government in the last couple of years who've been, you know, willing to talk off the record and give a insight into what's going on in their offices. Uh, but this was sort of the first time for us when we had people willing to step out or had just quit and willing to talk. So we had an attorney in the uh, Office of Civil Rights at DHS who spoke to us. And we had two doctors who I believe worked for HHS as consultants who had gone inside some of the detention facilities and had been alarmed by what they saw in terms of treatment of kids and the volume of kids. They started just seeing this huge influx. Um, so to hear their voices, and they weren't saying necessarily anything different than had been reported generally, or you might have seen in print, but to hear them talking and for them willing to put themselves out was kind of a big deal. And that's one of the benefits of 60 Minutes is we can take our time and circle back on stories that people know a little bit about and put it all in one place and tell the comprehensive story. So that was the first goal. The second part, I don't know if Oriana wants to talk about with Sharon Alfonsi. Uh, we'd done a ton of reporting and we, we had a lot of sourcing and we decided with Sharon to go down to the border and take a look for ourselves. Further along this dusty stretch of road. It's a family right there. He spots a family hiding in the bushes. He asks them if they're okay too and points the way to where they need to go. Watch their faces when he tells them they're in the United States. Okay. He didn't know where he was. No. He, he asked how far to the U.S., right? So we were letting him know he's already here. So that's kind of what brought him to tears. 
can I just ask you the logistics of doing these two pieces? Did one spawn the other? And how does it work that one of them was a one correspondent and one of them was the other correspondent? I don't think at the beginning we set out to do two pieces. Uh, Scott was very, we had been working very closely with Scott for years, Scott Pelly, and he was very interested in doing a border story. And once we got through that, we, you know, we had swatted a hornet's nest. So more people came out at us. And Scott was the busiest man in show business, did not have time to, to start on a new piece with us. So politely declined. And, and we were assigned to work with Sharon. It was great, really good, very talented, and really interested in this story as well. So we just sort of sat with her and tried to figure out how do we want to tell this story. And I think doing a trip down there and kind of seeing for ourselves what was going on. Scott, the original Scott piece was very document heavy and interview based, which most 60 pieces are. And I think we had an instinct to then, you know, grab some crews and go down and actually shoot people. If you watch a lot of TV news, you'll see a lot of those same border agents. You'll see that same road. You'll see the same trucks. It's the, it's the government's junket down to the border at the time. But we did it with a lot of information in our back pockets and decided we wanted to take that tour, but look at it in a different way. So, so it was a government junket, but it was a junket that we went into with a lot of deep reporting um, to tell that story. So either one of you can answer this, but um, when you say some people were willing to talk, do they come to you? Are you approaching them? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. I'll talk a little bit about that. Hi, everyone. I'm Oriana. Thank you so much for being at this talk. And thank you to the DuPonts. This was really, for us, a very meaningful and important award um, and a highlight of my career, certainly. And um, one thing that happened when you're on a story for a very long time, you tend to get people approaching you. Uh, people hear that you're working on something. And so it's a combination. Obviously, we reach out regularly to, uh, and in this story, particularly with Homeland Security, you know, all divisions, ICE, Customs and Border Protection, Customs and Immigration Services. We were reaching out to people we knew off the record, on background for months. And when you do that widely, gathering, you know, all the information we could. And I want to give you, just remind you of the climate that was going on at this point. There were two bits of misinformation out there that really bothered us. And it, some of it was actually even seeping into reporting on these subjects. One was Trump and his administration constantly repeating that the Obama administration had separated children and that th this was nothing new. That was not true. There, there was a technical way that kids could get separated from their parents previously, but it had never happened as a systemic policy ever before in the history of the country, we believe, or the last time it had happened was a long time ago in terms of slavery and the treatment of Native Americans. So the separation of children from parents was really something new. And we felt that it deserved a year of our time basically to look into it. Um, the second thing that was misinformation was on the left, you know, there was, the lost kids. The, the government has lost 40 kids. They have no idea where they are. There were hundreds of kids. There was all these headlines that were actually also not true. So there was misinformation, I would say, on both sides. And this issue had become extremely politicized. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things we really wanted to do was to 
stick to the facts and to get to government documents and government sources to back up everything we said. And I, I do feel proud that we were able to do that, particularly getting the unredacted version of that document allowed us to know that this policy had been going on for nine months before. And that led us to decide we need to count because obviously there's no one's counting what happened before. And we were able to go to numerous different publicly available records from different agencies, HHS, from Homeland Security, from Customs and Border Protection. Customs and Border Protection actually did not keep a record of the children that they took from the parents. Once they separated the kids from the parents, they renamed the files so that there was no way to connect the care parents and the kids back together. And that was one of the most shocking things that we and other journalists were discovering as we dug into this. So counting became very important. It became very important because otherwise there actually were children whose parents had been deported back to their home country who would never be reunited. So there was a lot of reasons why counting and specifics of when it started, how many children, how many parents, where they were, were incredibly important. What was happening was you were, there was this whole issue at the time, if you remember, of unaccompanied minors. A few years ago, one of the trends was all these teenagers coming over or younger kids even coming over without their parents. Those kids were in one basket and these were the accompanied minors. And what was happening was a blending of the two groups so you were, you were, as Oriana said, you were hearing headlines kind of from the left or the, or the, the mainstream saying thousands of kids separated, but those thousands were counting the kids who had come alone and weren't with their parents. So we had to wade through that and figure out who was who. Um, just quickly on the politicization part, right at the end, after, after the second piece, we got one bit of feedback, which was to us most interesting uh, about the two people who really liked the story. And one was Vice President Pence, and the second one was Gavin Newsom. They both thought it was a great story that told the, you know, told the, 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 told the story the way it should have been told. So it, for us, that meant we'd done our job and sort of sailed it right down the middle as we needed to. So much of what video does is if you're doing really serious reporting, it's taking so much of the work that you do, gathering all this stuff, and then and then just like throwing 98% of it away for the 2% that you can actually get into the piece. And then some of that is because you're not allowed to use it because you've gotten it on background or you've gotten it off the record. And I just want to hear a little bit about the idea of how much reporting actually has to happen in order to get the amount of information that is visible to the public versus what you're working with and why that's so important. Just an ex a good example that shows this is counting, the counting of the kids. So what, once we found out, once we got the document and we unredacted, or first at first the document was described to us on the phone, so we knew what it said about the pilot program, and then later we got, actually got the document, which was hard, and I, I can't still to this day I can't reveal who the source was, but this was one of many really brave people who came forward and essentially risked self-harm, uh, some of them still in their positions, some of them had left the government, to help us. Some of them were extremely high level, but they were people who were so upset about the policy that they wanted to help us and, and come forward and be, let the public know what was really going on behind the scenes. All of that reporting, very little of that actually ended up in the piece, except their big picture ideas. And, and the counting, 
again, all of that, the only thing that ended up in the piece was the number. And I believe we estimated it was 5,000. Um, it's since come out that it's actually even higher, possibly by a couple thousand higher than that number. Since the beginning of the Trump administration, children who were separated from their parents. But at the time, it was risky for us to go with a number that hadn't been verified and that was double what the government was actually saying. At the time, they were saying 2,600 in court. This wasn't you know, that they were saying it to the public, which they were, but they were saying this in court, effectively lying to the court. So again, counting all the work that went behind that, it was weeks and weeks and months of work going to 15 different agencies to check ourselves to make sure we were confident we could report that number. We were contacted by a very, I don't want to say, a person high up in the government who wanted to express to us their concern about the difference between what they felt needed to be done on separation and immigration policy and about what they were being told they had to do. So it was kind of one of those individuals you, you hope exists and do exist, who is trying to do the right thing. I don't want to say right or wrong, but try to do the thing that they feel like needs to be done on the border instead of being reactive to these quickie administration policies we see again and again and again. And we were called to a meeting with this individual, I mean, to be honest, it was in the basement of one of the government buildings in DC. We went in the back door, so our visit wouldn't have been shown up on any logs. And we met this individual. Um, and it was one of a handful of one-on-one -on -one meetings we had that really informed our reporting and what we were going to go see on the, on the border when we went uh, and how to think about what was happening and what needed to happen. So that was one of those things we couldn't, we would have loved to report that, you know, walking through steel doors and not knowing where we were and that sort of thing to have a meeting. And that individual at, at another point, they got used to us and comfortable with us and trusted us because we met them in person. We made the effort to go see them in person. Um, they basically broke down crying and said, I'm, you know, we're doing everything we can and I'm very worried about where this is all going. And this is a, a person who had done immigration work their whole life. Um, so it was, it was eye-opening to see the reality of what it's like for people working in government um, at various levels. So, but again, that was, you'll never, you never see that in the 60 minutes piece, but that was, you know, several trips down to Washington and elsewhere. And I will just add to that, that it was for both Michael and I, it was probably one of the most surreal, but important moments in our career to understand the depth of the dissent within various agencies about what was going on and the understanding that it was morally wrong. That'll be the book, I guess. <laughs> and you were dealing with a lot of leaked information and a lot of confidential sources. And do you know, how does that work internally at 60 Minutes? Do you keep that completely to yourself? Is there some kind of vetting process that you can talk to at all? In general, we work very closely with our senior producers and our executive editor, uh, and we share with them everything that they need to know, I guess. We can't possibly share with them everything that we do, but uh, when, when there's a piece of reporting that's reliant on a source or a document that we know about, we generally have a process for sharing it both with the top editors and producers and the lawyers. 
Uh, I'm going to look at the chat here. I know there were some questions that one of them was, how many children have been reunited with parents and how many have not been? Do you know anything about that, mm -hmm. either of you? Uh, yeah, I mean, most of the children have been reunited with family members, whether it's, it's often not parents because they couldn't find the parent or the parent had been deported. So it might be their aunt or their grandmother who, when they originally came with their family, they were headed in that direction. So they have an aunt who lives in, you know, Texas. Uh, so a lot of the children have been re reunited at this point with family. I think the last time I checked, there were a hundred cases that were in limbo and that was months ago. So I haven't checked recently. I don't know the current stats, but there were some bizarre cases where the parent couldn't be found or the child had no relative in the US and Unfortunately, during COVID, I've not been hearing good reports. I've been hearing really scary reports about what's going on. They were waiting for kids to turn 18 that were in US custody so that they could deport them. So in other words, they were not reuniting them with family members who were in New York or, or DC. If they're, let's say they're being held in New York, they're family members in DC. If the kid's 17, the government was waiting until they turned 18 instead of reuniting them with their family so that they could legally deport them when they turned 18. So that's something that I've heard a lot about recently. There's certainly a lot of reporting to be done in this area and I encourage people to get on it. Um, one of the questions also about this, uh, if you could go into any more detail about how you figured out the real number of separated children and if you have any guidance for reporters trying to do this kind of count of victims in a particular issue when they're not getting good numbers from the government? Uh, I mean, start with the publicly available stuff. I mean, we, we worked on the backs of very good local reporters. There's a, uh, I can't remember where she works right now. I follow her on Twitter, a reporter named Dara Lind, L-A-N-D, uh, who does a lot of border reporting. And she was sort of throwing out estimates and numbers that she was hearing and seeing that, at least for me personally, when we sat down to have a conversation, our production team helped inform me a little bit. So it's really standing on the work of others. And you'd be surprised how much is publicly available and printed before you even start digging into the documents. So that was our baseline. And then we made some suppositions. We, you know, we'd known about the pilot program. So, okay, so how many kids in the pilot program? And we started to try to report that out from people who were involved in it. So some of it was anecdotal, but a lot of it was coming from documents that were also pulled out of the, what was the Congressional Records Office, uh, HHS. We did some calls with folks who do this for a living, whether it's immigration numbers or other numbers. Uh, it was an amnesty guy, I think in Europe we spoke to, who, who looked at our numbers and was like, yeah, maybe we were a little less convinced after that phone call, but gave us a sense of where to keep looking and kind of what the ballparks were out there. So. Uh, don't do it in isolation. Ask for help. Make make calls to people who, who do this sort of thing. I know that's a lousy bit of uh, advice, but. Well, but it's, again, much more than what you ever see on the screen. There's so much yeah. behind and it. Are, you're not going to find a single source document where you go, holy cow, this document says it's 5,000. It's, you know, it didn't work that way. Because they didn't count. They didn't count. <laughs> yeah. This question is how you handle following up on your reporting and getting answers from the decision makers when the accountability actors keep changing, especially leadership at the top of DHS. So you, you know the players and then the players just keep changing. Although in some way, I guess that's helpful for you because when they leave, they're sometimes more free to talk. Sometimes. Uh, yeah, I think we had some interesting conversations with, with staffers from Secretary Nielsen who were out, who had you know political bones to pick 
they weren't necessarily upset with what had happened on immigration. In fact, they were part of it, but didn't like the new guys and they didn't like this guy. And you can sort of work off that once you figure it out. So the turnover can be helpful. Uh, it can make it a little jarring because you're calling one person one day and they're gone the next. But, but actually now I'm, now I'm remembering we got in sort of a pissing match with one of the DHS spokespeople. We'd been trying to get to Stephen Miller. He was someone we really wanted to talk to at least on background and then potentially interview. And that was kind of a goal or early goal. And I think we made a mistake or I made a mistake. I got a little hot on the phone with one of the DHS press people who ended up being his girlfriend. And I think they're now married. So that may have, I, I don't know, I'm speculating, but I sort of kicked myself for not being more polite and or being less pushy on the phone. Cause I think that that turned around to bite us later. Although to be fair, he's never done an interview right. on television ever. So I don't think he would have done it anyway. No. Um, even though, I mean, that, uh, that's another lesson for journalists out there. There's a tendency if you're reporting on a subject like this to think, oh God, well, I don't wanna hear the views of this person in the White House who's directing all this because he's the evil person or he's whatever. That's the person you wanna hear from because the audience deserves to hear straight from their mouth what they're thinking and doing. And so that uh, an important lesson is always to go to the person at the top of the policy and make sure you ask them for an interview. So often they don't give it, but if they can, if you do get that interview, it will be very revealing because just hearing someone give their own perspective is always revealing on television. And also gives you an opportunity to challenge them. Sometimes it's, it's more satisfying to hear the question than the answer. If, if it's backed by reporting. And there's, there's one moment, if you get to watch the Sharon Alfonsi piece, where Sharon asks the uh, then acting secretary, Kevin McAleen, and uh, what they're going to do with all the people that they're picking up on the border. And he said, well, we're building a series of soft-sided structures. And right. she looks at him and goes, tents. And it sort of catches him. And he's like, yeah, tents, I guess. He didn't want to say tent. We're not stuffing kids in tents. We're putting them in soft-sided structure. And that's one of those moments when there's a little bit of crack, a little light comes through and you see kind of, you get around the spin. But. So you dealt with a lot of people who, you know, may have opposed the current administration's policies and they are speaking to you. Do you ever fear for your safety or fear any kind of retaliation? I don't know, necessarily physical safety, but any kind of threats? I mean, Oriana pals around with Medellin cartel people. So <laughs> we felt pretty safe. No, I... I I never, I never did. You know, we, we did a few years ago, one of the first projects we worked on was the investigation to Lance Armstrong. Uh, we did a series of stories that we like to think led to his outing and downfall. But that, in my mind, was scarier. We were getting hints of leaked emails and stolen emails. Our emails ended up in places that were weird. We think we may have gotten followed at an art show once. Th that, that was creepy. But I, I never felt during this government stuff that, that there was an issue with that. Yeah, I, th I would say the, the most risky situations Michael and I have been in have been with corporations we've been reporting on mm -hmm. uh, because we've done a n number of healthcare stories about big corporations. And uh, they, they tend to be the ones to hire the hackers and the private investigators who can really, hmm. you know, bother you or try to get into your emails or do things like that. But those things have happened uh, numerous times at 60 Minutes for a lot of a lot of producers have been hacked or correspondents have been hacked. It is a problem. But I, in terms of the government, I haven't 
that we know of. I mean, I haven't felt any direct threats. Um, so let me just pivot a little bit and ask you something about your life now. Boy. Um, so I'm a senior producer at the Evening News, and there's six of us, six or seven of us, and we basically manage the, the Evening News every night at 6.30. What has that been like? What's the difference, would you say, between doing that kind of coverage and the 60 Minutes stories? It's just a completely different sport. I'm doing more management of people and assigning. I do the planning and the pitch process at the evening news, try to figure out sort of looking a week ahead. But to be honest, in the last three months, we can't look further than an hour ahead. It's just been such a blast of news between COVID and, and the Black Lives Matter. I think under normal circumstances, if we were all in our broadcast center, it would be difficult and trying, but now it's, uh, it's, uh, it's interesting to say the least. We're all in different areas. I mean, nobody, there's, there's a handful of technical people making sure that we get on air. Um, there's some folks in the control room and two or three producers out of Washington who get the show technically on the air. But otherwise, I mean, I have two production teams out right now. I'm waiting to hear back from them, one in Tulsa. But part of that is the team in Tulsa has to be, you know, they have to make sure I know their plan. I have to know their security plan, their health safety plan. They all have to be tested. They all have to have PPE. Um, and depending on what they do on this trip, they may have to quarantine for two weeks. So it makes things a lot harder, but, uh, so far so good. We had, we had one experience two weeks ago when the evening news didn't make air, which is the first time in the history of the evening news. But I think given the virus and the protests across the country, we had a pretty good, pretty good excuse. We had, there was a piece of equipment that failed and the backup failed. So we were, we missed the 6.30 broadcast, but we, we re-air the show for all the time zones. So every night it airs four or five times a night. So once the 6.30 was over on the East Coast, we were able to, to get back on air for the seven. So the East Coasters saw promos for CSI over and over for about 10 minutes. That's what people get fired for under normal circumstances, but it was kind of out of everybody's hands. So it's, it's, been, it's been interesting. There's less time for journalism than there is logistics which makes it harder, and it's just a much different sport. Ariana, you're doing a story right now that's about COVID. I know that you have actually been out in the field. Can you talk a little bit about how that's all working? Um, sure, yeah, we, so um, we, I don't know how many people know this, but right when, I guess it was in early March, at least 10, maybe more people at 60 Minutes came down with COVID. Some of them were hospitalized. Uh, luckily, they have all recovered, but uh, it was very scary. I was flying down to New Orleans to get bring my son back from college. You know, at the same time that was happening, the, the office was shutting down, everybody back to their homes, and no real clear sense of how we were going to get the show on the air. They very quickly figured it out. And the way we're doing it is a lot of the interviews are done as Zoom interviews. So you're talking, the correspondents in a room, it's sometimes in their home or sometimes in a clean studio that we set up with a camera crew, but they're being shot by a camera with our, our same 60 minutes look. So it's not the Zoom image that you're seeing on television, it's the camera image. And then we, we send a crew to the other person's house and so the correspondent and the interview subject are talking to each other via Zoom call, but the actual images that go on television are 
footage from a, a big camera, from a regular, our regular cameras with the same framing and lighting and everything that we would normally do. So it looks better and I think it's working. Then we also do some in-person interviews where the interview subject has to be 10 feet away from the correspondent and all the camera crews have to be 10 feet away from them. So wow. we need these enormous rooms. So a lot of logistics, as Michael said, we're now doing a lot more logistics. It also, it's more complicated because you're having two, if you're doing one of the Zoom ones, you're doing a crew in San Francisco and a crew in Austin, Texas, which I recently did. And you're having to manage those two crews on the phone and on a Zoom call while the, you know, the, your interview subject is sitting there waiting. And so it's, you know, it's not ideal, certainly. It's not as, I think interviews are always better in person. Right. And that's a lesson I learned a long time ago. Phone calls are great, but interviews, whether it's with a source or anyone, is always going to be better in person. So I'm looking forward to the day when we can get back to that. But the production has gone smoothly so far, so. And CBS was the first of the networks to actually be affected, right? I mean, it was, it was sort of like a newsmaking story about the fact that people had gotten yeah. infected. Yeah, and that was the, the strange part. I mean, I'm, I know we've all experienced, we all experienced mid-March, um, but I was at the time in Washington, D.C. at the Bureau there just doing a work visit. And the way it's set up now, because Nora O'Donnell is doing her show out of Washington, what they call our fishbowl, which is the group of senior producers, is split between New York and Washington. So there's two desks and we communicate with each other through a live stream video. So we can just look up and look at the screen and ask questions and talk to each other. And I was in DC with a couple of people and the crew was working away in New York and we looked up and all of a sudden the audio cut and everybody at the desk was standing up and they were getting spoken to by a, um, a senior level person from CBS and they literally grabbed their coats and ran out of the building. Uh, it was at a time when we really didn't understand the spread and how kind of it all worked. And suddenly at three o'clock on a Wednesday, we were trying to do the CBS evening news out of Washington for the first time without half of our staff uh, so it was a real mad scramble and scary, you know, we didn't have time to, to, to really focus on what was happening. We just had to get the show on at 6.30 and then, and then deal with it. So switching gears a little bit, uh, someone wanted to get, uh, get a better idea of the pitching process behind the scenes, which I know a little bit about. Um, how do reporters, APs, and producers come together to suggest and pick the ideas that end up making it on screen? What does that process look like? Do ideas tend to come from top-down, or do many of the shows feature bottom-up ideas? Brianna, do you want to talk about um, it? It's all producer-generated. Uh, I mean, the producer's job is to spend uh, at least part of your time coming up with new stories that you pitch into a system that we call the blue sheets. Um, and it basically means if your blue sheet is approved on a certain topic, no one else at the show can do that topic. Um, so- Time stamped, so it's competitive. Yeah, right? it, we are internally competitive with other producers, so- Very competitive. Yeah, highly competitive. So it, it's better now than it used to be, but um, if you wanted to get a big interview, um, Michael and I did an interview with a guy named Alan Gross, who was uh, freed from Cuba when the opening happened under Obama with Cuba. And there were probably three other teams competing for that same interview. We got it. And so we got the story. Um, and that happens all the time with, you know, every, a lot, every big interview you see, they'll be competitive. 
people trying to work their sources to get it first. Uh, but producers generate, producers and APs generate the stories, the correspondents run their producers, so they have to approve the stories and then it's blue sheeted. If the bosses approve it, then we're on our own to produce the story and do all the reporting until we show it in a formal screening process. Somebody has asked if you have any tips for multimedia reporters who have worked off screen or trying to get their first job reporting or producing for a television network. How do you make that jump? And you sort of, you're, you've talked a little bit about that. Is there anything else? So, so the question is jumping from producer to on air? No, uh, more like if you're not at a network, how do you get to a network? Uh, interesting. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know the pro I mean, obviously look for job openings. And they and they exist. They're out there. I mean, we've we've had some shrinking shrink, shrinkage or whatever at at CBS recently. But the skill sets that I that I see among the younger producers at the evening news and across the news division are the same ones that you have to build up in local news. Probably more because of resources in local. You you shoot your own stuff. You sometimes you edit your own stuff. You're doing your own stand-ups, all that stuff. Having those skills, I've seen a lot of that stuff on air uh, at the evening news. If you're in the right place at the right time. We have a team of what we call VJs um, at Evening News who are spread out across the country who are doing just this. When we can't send a crew, there they go. And they're shooting stand-ups with correspondents. They're doing everything. And having those skills, whether you're using them or not, is really important. If you know how to edit, you're going to be a much better producer in the edit room and a much better shooter in the field because you're going to know, don't wave the camera around. you got to edit to that. You know, there's, there's, there's basic skills that if you have them, makes you a much... Uh, hotter commodity and being good is noticed because you have an audience of everybody in the newsroom seeing what's getting fed in and if you're the man or the, the woman on the spot it's going to get noticed so getting in at that sort of vj lower level uh, is just a question of making phone calls and applying and you know, keep trying and keep trying I, sure. I actually worked I, I i i interviewed at cbs probably 10 times Wow. Or I finally got a job at 60 Minutes. And what did it? Do you know? Like, can you say what was the, what happened on the 10th time? Well, I was actually lucky that I, I had gotten so much experience outside that I had become a producer at a, at Frontline. So when, when you come in as a producer, then you stay a producer. If you come in as an AP, it's a lot harder to move up to a producer level. Um, but there's plenty of people at CBS who came in as a executive assistant or a, B, a BA or a, um, in, an intern who have, you know, succeeded because they worked really, really hard and they've moved up all the way to producer. So it, you can do it either way. You can go in early or you can get a lot of experience on the outside and then go in later. Yeah. I mean, I got my job at 60 Minutes off of my J School documentary. That's what I showed them and they tell. So. Tell us a little more about that. Tell us about okay. how school helped you get to 60 Minutes. Well, I was uh, not documentary TV. What did I do? I was a TV, sorry, because a long time ago. Uh, I was a TV major and I did a 30 minute documentary for my thesis. And we ended up selling it to HBO at the time. They were doing a series. It was about a Holocaust survivor and it was, um, they were doing this, HBO was doing a series of shorts about the elderly and we got it in front of them and they picked it up. Um, so I was able to use that to sort of walk in the front door at 60 and say, I can do this and was hired as an assistant. I was Charlie Rose's assistant for two years. 
um, having come out of the J school and it was because it got me in the door and it put me in the room where I needed to be. And then I worked from there to, to, to work my way up. So you may not, for the, for those looking for their first jobs, you may not be on the ground shooting and editing and doing all that multimedia stuff on the first day because you're working on the desk, but you'll get there for sure if you have those skills, so. Fantastic, and I think that's a great note to stop. Thank you very much to mm. both Brianna and Michael for being with us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye everybody, thank you. Thank you, Michael Ray and Oriana Zildra-Granados for visiting virtually with our students. This episode of On Assignment was brought to you with the support of the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and Columbia Journalism School. It was produced by J-School grad, Christina Shaman. We also had production assistance from Jack Rossiter-Munley, and as always, our production coordinator, Lauren Marigildo Santos. Our music is by Dylan Nowick. Follow us on Twitter at Columbia Journal. Until next time. <laughs>